uh, welcome everybody officially to our third session in the, um, oh, and Randy's there too. Hello, Randy. Didn't say hello to you when you popped in. Um, yeah, this is our third session for the question and answers, and we're kind of moving into um, some of the miscellaneous, but there's always some liturgical questions that piggyback on these things, because that's what we do at All Saints, <laughs> and we always have. Uh, so this question comes from someone who has been at the parish for a very long time, uh, predated my time at the parish, and was asking what happened to a couple of prayers that used to be in the liturgy. And so um, these were related to during the time of Holy Communion. One was that the uh, everybody would, would say together um, right after the, the Agnes, after we would sing the Agnes Day, everybody would um, say the centurion's prayer from, from the gospel where the centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, um, but say the word only. And in the gospel says, my servant shall be healed. But the way it gets adapted liturgically is, and my soul shall be healed three times um, before the priests take. And then after the priests take, they would turn around and hold up the, the host and the wine and say either, it was either Christ our Passover sacrificed for us, therefore let's keep the feast. Or, you know, behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And in both cases, these were things that were um, uh, additions from the Missal. And so the Missal, I think we've talked about this before, but um, among the, the ritualists of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there was an attempt by folks that got called the ritualists and later on they became the kind of the Anglo-Catholic movement who wanted to reconcile some of what's going on in, in Anglicanism with, with Roman Catholicism. And there was this idea that, you know, wanting to kind of, kind of bolster the Catholic bona fides and that sort of thing. And so one of the ways this happens liturgically is there were, um, there was trying to fill in some of the things that they thought were liturgically deficient with the prayer book with elements from the uh, Roman Catholic rite, the, 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 the rite from Trent and that sort of thing. And so um, both of these were, were some of those elements, as frankly was, you know, always doing the Agnus Dei, um, the Benedictus Quivenit after the Sanctus and things like that we've already talked about. Um, what happens as the 20th century moves forward is there's there is a general success of Anglo-Catholic sensibilities on most of the church. And a lot of these kinds of things do find their way into more modern liturgies. Um, and, you know, some of the elements that we, 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 we see even in our parish, um, the, full, the full vesting for communion, um, the uh, more candles on the altar, um, a vested choir, things like that, really do represent the success of the Anglo-Catholic movement, kind of, um, you know, bringing a lot of their sensibilities into the church as a whole. Which, and there's nothing wrong with that. all that stuff is adiaphora. But when, when I when I became rector, I, um, in consultation with the bishop and and the vestry at the time, um, I wanted to stick to the script of the prayer book. And the plate we've and we've talked about this before. Um, so I basically expunged any of the missile editions, um, unless they were something that could fit into 
either the rubric for you know they kind of fit in as the hymn in the in the rubric the hymn or the or the the song of, from scripture such as that so that's where our introit our tract or alleluia that comes you know the introit before the service you know after the after the opening hymn and before the the liturgy as a whole when that's chanted or chanting the the alleluia or the tract between the the epistle and the gospel um the singing of the agnus day all those things fit in with the rubrics for for a hymn at those places and then the benedictus quiveni was in the musical settings provided by our hymnal for our prayer book and you know and that hymnal has um not quite as official status as the prayer book but it's pretty close to it and so those things i retained um, but the other things I, I, I expunged so that we would keep to the script. Um, this made it a, a lot more consistent service theologically, made it more user-friendly because you could actually just follow along in the prayer book. And it made it so that when the bishop visited, he didn't get lost in um, kind of our individual parish uh, um, eclectic approaches. And every parish has certain liturgical eclectic things about them but um and and most most higher church parishes who are bringing in things from the missile it's kind of selective like that so you do end up with pretty idiosyncratic services and um you know when you have a whole diocese like that you kind of learn to roll with the punches but that's not our diocese and um and and also that's not really my my one of my primary liturgical um convictions is that the prayer book doesn't need to be fixed and so kind of the ethos of trying to fix the prayer book to make it more catholic um you know scare quotes around catholic there um just to me isn't isn't is neither necessary nor desirable um so so that's the answer to that okay the next question what is the rule of saint benedict so um saint benedict of nursa is um, kind of the founder of Western monasticism as we know it. And it's not that Western monasticism didn't happen before Benedict, but when Benedict designs the communities that he founded, it really impacts everything from then on. And the rule of St. Benedict, um, every mo monastic group would have a rule of life. So it's basically, here are the rules if you're going to live in this community, this is what it looks like to live here. And the rule of St. Benedict was, was one of those kinds of rules. And what made the, makes the rule of St. Benedict unique is that it's a relatively low key, um, not particularly strict. There's a lot of practical wisdom in there. And it was so effective that, again, it basically becomes the foundation for everybody that comes after that. So, you know, like, like um, this is, this is Cistercians, the Dominicans, all of those guys, their rules are based on the rule of St. Benedict originally. Um, why this comes up for, for our circles is that um, there's, there's a few reasons. There, there's a lot of kind of Benedictine, um, there's, a, there's a bit of a Benedictine ethos to the Book of Common Prayer because the British Isles were very monastic um, to, to the point where like in, in Ireland, for example, the monasteries had a lot more power than the bishops. You know, the abbots, the abbots functioned with more power than the bishops in, in a lot of cases. 
um, less so in England, but there, but there was a very strong Benedictine ethos to, to English Christianity anyway, you know, British Christianity all over the British Isles. Um, and, and what ends up happening with the prayer book is that the monastic offices, which again are all based on the kinds of things you'll find in the rule of St. Benedict, get simplified and adapted for regular folk. So Henry VIII, when he, when he split from Rome, he does disestablish all the monasteries. He, he, he shuts them down, brings them into state control. And most of those, the people that were, were there just kind of change jobs. I mean, they're still doing the same kinds of things in the same places, but now they're no longer, you know, monks. They're kind of just regular clergy. And parish life, you know, the, the shift goes from the monastery to the, to the local parish, but the prayer book as, you know, as things develop over the next 150 years, the prayer book becomes that rule of life for the regular folk, for the parish. And we don't see monasticism come back into Anglicanism until, again, the late 19th, early 20th centuries with um, the rise of the Anglo-Catholic movement. Um, there, there, it's, it's certainly been fashionable in those circles, and particularly there's an Anglican um, theologian, or was, he, he's, he's long dead by now, by the name of Martin Thornton. And um, he, he wrote some, some very famous books, English Spirituality is one of them, The Purple-Headed Mountain is another one. And Thornton, um, a lot of his kind of philosophy for the uniqueness of Anglicanism is that um, in his mind, it's taking Benedictine spirituality and really running with it as, as an ethos for the entire church. That's arguable whether that's true or not, but he, he makes pretty good case for it. Um, within our own diocese, we do have a society of St. Benedict, which is, so it's not a vowed monastic group, but it's kind of a, um, well, it's, it's, it's a voluntary society, kind of similar to the um, Women's Union or Mother's Union, Women's Guild in Nigeria, things like that. Um, you know, that, that, are, that all come from kind of normal English parish life. And our own Father Barry, who, you know, we, 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 plant, we sent Father Barry to plant St. Benedict Anglican Church and his crew. He is the, um, the head of that society, the bishop appointed him. So one of the things they do in the, in that, in the society in our diocese is they do uh, study through the rule of St. Benedict and talk about how that might apply to their life. So it's a, it's a voluntary thing. There's no vows. Um, but, but yeah, that, that is, that is a, and that's not an uncommon thing within, within Anglican circles. Um, our Bishop is a, is a Benedictine himself. Um, if you see after his, his initials or his uh, title OSB following it, that's order of St. Benedict. Uh, so, so yeah, that, that is a thing in, in our diocese, in our circles. And it was very important. Okay, the next question. When I search on Amazon for Anglican books, it sometimes gives me rosaries. So do Anglicans use the rosary? Let's give a background on the rosary and then we'll answer the question. Um, the rosary is a, is a set of prayer beads and prayer beads we do find um, pretty, pretty early on in, in, in the Christian life. And they, in the Western church, it kind of is usually found in the form of a rosary. So the rosary will have 
a group of 10 beads called a decade separated by another bead. And um, it comes from a Dominican um, devotion, which is based on um, on the on the ten beads they would recite Hail Marys. On the big beads they would recite the Our Father. And during each of those decades, they would meditate on some aspect of Christ's life. And there's kind of a set way of doing that that's developed in Roman Catholic circles. Um, so it, it's really less of a set of prayers than it is kind of um, a meditational technique, if, if that makes sense. Um, yes, yeah, a lot of times when Protestants see that, they're thinking, what is, well, yeah, do, do they think they're getting more credit because they're repeating this prayer a whole lot? Well, actually, the repeating of the prayer is to help with the focus, will help with the med meditative exercise, meditating on that aspect of Jesus' life. So, um, you know, and in, in the Eastern Church, theirs tends to be in the form of prayer ropes rather than beads. And it's usually designed around the, the Our Fathers. And some of the, the reason why these practices developed um, in the early Middle Ages was so that regular lay folk could have um, something like what the monks were doing in terms of reciting the 150 Psalms every day as part of their monastic um, practices. So instead, you know, that was too much for regular folks. So in the West, it'd be 150 Hail Marys as you go through um, five decades, five, five groups of 10. In the East, it would be 100, 150 Our Fathers or 150 Jesus Prayers, things like that. Um, once again, we don't really see Anglicans using the rosary classically, but it does become more common, again, because of the Anglo-Catholic influence, the ritualist influence, late 19th, early 20th century, and moving on from there. And in a lot of those circles, they will just adapt the normal Roman Catholic Hail Mary based rosary or some folks will, even though if they're using a regular, uh, you know, Catholic rosary will, you know, kind of do more of an Eastern style Jesus prayer and, and Lord's prayer sort of thing. Um, but also in the late 20th century, I'm thinking the 1980s, but it might be the, the 70s. Um, some folks in the Episcopal Church developed what they called an Anglican Rosary, which instead had um, groups of seven, so four groups of seven with a big bead each way. So you kind of had this big cross, and the total number of beads ended up being 33, one for each year of Jesus' life. But then there was a lot of different suggestions that, that these folks came up with and um, for, for what prayers to assign there. And, and it was very kind of informal, you know, there was never anything set. Um, a lot of those prayers were some of the stuff from the, from the morning and evening prayer liturgies. So you do see that from time to time too, these, these Anglican, Anglican prayer beads or sometimes called Anglican rosaries. Um, I, I have used that in some of my devotions in the past, but um, frankly, it was when I was kind of new to returning to my liturgical roots. Um, I don't particularly find it very helpful for me um, these days. I'm, you know, office and the Psalter is really kind of where I'm at. But I, but there are there are a lot of um, a lot of Anglicans who do incorporate some form of of the prayer beads. Um, again, it's and it's more of a 
meditate meditative practice than actually prayer straight up. Uh, but so you do see that from time to time. Um, but that's that's really kind of a private thing. It's it's not something that folks would do in a public setting. Um, you know, if my mom's side of the family are are Hispanic and Roman, most of them are Roman Catholic. So, you know, anytime somebody dies the night before the funeral, there's the velodio where where everybody gets together and prays through the rosary together, led by one of the mourners. And so, you don't ever see that kind of thing in, in Anglican circles. Um, but 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 you do see individuals adapting rosaries or prayer beads for their private devotions. Okay, next question. This one says, it's not a serious question, but you mentioned that Bishop Orgy could move you at any time. That's scary. So do we need to start a petition uh, going saying that we want you always to be our pastor? <laughs> I very much appreciate the, the, uh, the sentiment there. <laughs> very, very flattered with that. And, uh, and, I, and I, do, I, do, I do see that. I wanted to bring it up because it does talk some, some about what you know, the, the bishop's authority is. Yeah, so, so the bishop can move, move the priests and the clergy around. That is within his, his purview. Um, the only time he would really exercise that is if there's a problem. So um, for whatever reason, you know, the priest and the, and the congregation or the priest and the vestry are just not getting along. It's completely unreconcilable. He might move the priest in that, in that sort of situation. Um, maybe there's been, you know, so that, that sort of thing. Um, in Nigeria, in our, in our mother church, um, this usually happens, also, again, in a disciplinary sort of way. So if a congregation, for example, is not paying their tithe to the diocese, the tithe that they have agreed to do so, and they haven't kind of worked out what's going up, and they're just basically being negligent with their duties to the diocese, one of the things that is not uncommon to happen is that the, the bishop will um, send their priest to some remote little, little um, brand new mission and put him under the authority of a deacon or a lay catechist kind of a, to, to, to humble him. And he won't send a new priest to that congregation until they start doing their duties. <laughs> um, that's kind of an extreme measure, but that is something that, that happens from time to time. Um, but yeah, in, in, in our diocese, that's, that's moving or removing a priest is usually something that happens only in, in, in disciplinary issues um, where, where that, yeah, there's, there's a problem somewhere. Um, but but the, the fact is, though, that, you know, as a priest, um, you know, I, I, I have made vows of, of obedience to the bishop and all the, all the clergy have. Um, that we we are to obey him in things that are um, lawful um, and, and economical, which does include if he said, okay, you know, I don't want you at All Saints anymore, you know, we're putting someone else there, them's the breaks. But but that but that'd be very rare in, in our situations. It's not like in um, Catholic churches where you tend to get a new priest every five years just because that's their policy. They move them around kind of like the, the military. That's not the way it usually goes in our circles. Um, th that said, you know, the, the church is older than I am. And so I, I am just the, the latest long line of, of pastors for all saints. And there's something really good about that. Um, and most people at the church have no clue who the, the prior priests were and and um they might know the most recent 
or some of the particularly older members might know a couple down the line, but um, no, it's, it's uh, that's a good thing. That, that's, that speaks to um, that it's not about, it's not a cult of personality around, around the pastor. Um, and, and we don't want it to be. So, um, you know, one, one day for whatever reason, you know, I, I, I won't be there and Lord willing, all saints still will be, you know, that's, that's, that's the, uh, that's, that's the nature of an older church. And that's, that's a good thing. Um, but rest assured, I'm, I'm not, I'm not looking to go anywhere and the Bishop's not looking to move me anywhere. He, he's happy with me being here and I'm happy to be here as well. Okay. Let's see. Next question. Um, does Anglicanism have a more extensive catechism than the one offered in the prayer book? If not, would you say the Heidelberg or Westminster catechism support the Anglican way? So um, in terms of kind of official status catechisms, no, there are not anything more substantial than the, than the prayer books. And in, in kind of traditional um, Protestant catechism tradition, what we have would be considered a shorter catechism you know, something that's designed to be memorized, designed for the kids, um, rather than a longer catechism. And a lot of traditions have both. I mean, there's the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is kind of like the one in our prayer book for Presbyterians, and then there's the, the larger catechism. Um, we have had historically some um, quasi-official catechisms that, that are longer than that. Um, and the most famous of these historically is by I'm not sure if you pronounce his name Noel or Nowell, but um, from from the time of this is yeah, sixteenth uh, seven early seventeenth century bishop, and he did have, um, and he was part of the architect for our, our catechism as we have it now. He was one of the main guys, but he also did publish a a longer catechism and a middle catechism. Um, I've never I've never extensively studied them, though I, I've been told that they're both really good. And you can find those online. Um, I think you spell his name N-O-W-E-L-L. -L. But yeah, if you look for Noel's Catechism, it might be Nowell. But um, yeah, those those are a pretty good historic research resource. Um, in in a more recent sort of sort of thing, um, the Anglican Church North America has a very long <laughs> catechism. It's it's several hundred questions long. Um, it's book length that is called to be a Christian. And that is the official catechism for the Anglican church in North America. And it's something that was done in partnership with the other GAFCON provinces, which includes Nigeria. And so the to be a Christian is probably the closest thing to an official larger catechism we have now. It's a very good resource. Um, the main reason why I don't use it for um, confirmation prep is that it is so long that the last time I taught through it, it took me two and a half years. Um, I do know some folks who are able to get through it somehow. For, they start in every year. They start in um, September and they're done by Easter. I don't know how they do it, but, um, but they do. As to the Heidelberg or the Westminster, um, I, I would say most of what's in Heidelberg or Westminster would be compatible with our formularies. Um, but they might go a little farther than, than our formularies would in some, in some respects. Um, I'm thinking such as um, some of the, the discussions about double predestination, some of those sorts of things. 
Um, our bishop really does like both of those um, catechisms a lot. He 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 uses those for some of his teaching resources. Um, and I and I would say that historically among Anglicanisms, uh, among Anglicans, Heidelberg has had more um, clout than Westminster. And part of that's because I think historically Westminster was um, some folks that were breaking away from the Church of England, kind of doing their own thing, although they did start from what was already in the Church of England. So Westminster is going to look a lot like our stuff because that was the starting point for, for, for Westminster. But um, I, th I think just for some of those historic reasons, there's a little bit less um, enjoyment of Westminster among, among Anglican is, Anglicans historically than Heidelberg, although we do have some kind of more Puritan leaning folks that really like Westminster as well. Um, then the, the next one is, is regarding the, uh, the way that, that, that the, uh, for our formularies approach scripture. And so um, it says, knowing the high emphasis the prayer book places on scriptures. Um, however, the 39 articles don't especially state that the Bible is the inspired word of God without error in original form and entirety. Is this the Anglican view of scripture um, about that? And then they, they also asked about the Apocrypha um, as I go through this. Um, so that particular definition is one that's commonly used for what's, what's known as the doctrine of inerrancy. And in, in that particular wording of it, that really springs out of some of those debates in the 19th century when you start to see German higher criticism enter into the conversation, Darwinism, um, and those sorts of conversations. And, and, and the doctrine of inerrancy at being called inerrancy is something that's most emphasized kind of in American um, debates between the liberals and the fundamentalists or the liberals and the, and the evangelicals. And I'm using that term liberal in a older sense of the word, you know, theological liberal, not kind of a modern political sort of, sort of, sort of approach. Um, so that particular way of addressing the issue is something that, that really postdates the Articles of Religion, postdates the prayer book. And we, we find that a lot of um, the, especially like Church of England evangelicals and other um, folks that have a really high view of scripture tend to see those as kind of an American fight <laughs> because it was dealing with things going on in the American church. Um, so that said, um, you know, I, 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 the, the formularies certainly do, uh, you know, treat the scriptures as entirely trustworthy, as entirely true. Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, for example, you don't find anybody among our, our classical divines that would have doubted the existence of Noah or the, doubted the existence of Adam and Eve. Um, Archbishop uh, Usher of the Church of Ireland during the time of um, you know, the, the, the Protestant Church of Ireland, so he's an Anglican, uh, of, um, and that was during the late, late uh, time of James I, early times of, of Charles I. You know, Usher is the one that really gives us the 
calculations that lead to a young earth perspective on, on creation. You know, that comes from one of our guys. Um, that said, generally you're not, you're not going to find even, you know, orthodox, really theologically conservative Anglicans being willing to go to the mat on issues of young earth versus old earth, you know, th those sorts of things. Um, just today, there was a, you know, in the North American Anglican, there was uh, kind of published a, an, a, uh, an opinion piece where, where a priest really makes a case that we really ought to move in that direction of really, you know, fighting for these things in the same way that you'll see in uh, among a lot of the Southern Baptist world, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod world, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, and I know because I'm on the editorial team that uh, tomorrow they're going to publish the other perspective <laughs> on that from a different writer. Um, they, they got both of those. So, um, you know, and, and, and what, what we do see in the, in the articles is that the thing that they're most concerned about is that when it comes to matters of faith and morals, the Bible is the final ultimate um, word. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't consider, again, using, using a very common point of, of this discussion within, within an American Protestant context, I wouldn't consider old earth versus younger something worth really going to the mat over. I'm, I'm open to have my mind changed on that. And, and I really don't have a strong opinion on that issue because, because I don't see the scriptures requiring me to have a strong opinion on that issue, if that makes sense. It's, it's not something that I'm, you know, that, that really interests me very much. Um, but, but that's, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of my, my, my approach to that. Uh, your, your mileage may vary <laughs> on, on that issue, but, you know, someone that, but I, but I would say that we would have a problem, um, you know, if, if you can't affirm a literal Adam and Eve, a literal Noah, um, that sort of thing, that's probably a, a problem. You know, you, you can't allegorize the stories, um, there might be allegor allegorical elements to those, and the math might not always be as precise as we'd like it to be today. You could make that argument, I'd be, I'd be okay with that. Or you could say, no, that math is exactly the same math. <laughs> you know, that's fine too. Um, that, so I, I don't think that's a problem, but yeah, as long as we're not going, you, you know, and we're, we're not trying to discredit it in the way that you know, frankly, you do see happening in, among theological liberalism of the, of the 19th century, 20th century, and, and today. And then, um, you know, the, the Apocrypha, um, what, what's, what's the deal with the Apocrypha? So um, at the time of the Reformation, the, the, there, the big debate, and this was a debate that just had never been fully solved before then, and, and we find church fathers on both sides of this debate was the, the books that we find in the Septuagint that are not in the Hebrew text, what do you do with those? You know, the, which comes to be called the Old Testament Apocrypha. Um, the Protestant churches all kind of side with St. Jerome, who was the greatest scripture scholar of his day, really the first of the Latin fathers to, to be a, a really strong Old Testament scholar. And we side with St. Jerome who say they're edifying, but they're not, they're not inspired. Um, 
others, you know, the, the Roman Catholic side with St. Augustine and other folks who just want to basically take the Septuagint straight up. Um, and I think, you know, the, the Orthodox, e even among them, they don't take the whole thing because there's books that are in the Roman Catholic um, deuterocanonicals that are not in the Eastern Orthodox one. So all three of those groups end up with different approaches. But we would, we would consider the, the Apocrypha worth studying, worth reading. You know, I, I've, heard, I've heard, you know, some kind of more, more reformed meaning Anglican priests, some friends of mine who they consider, well, why would you read the Apocrypha from, from the, you know, in the lessons, you know, but you wouldn't read, say, St. Augustine. I mean, to them, it's the same level of, of authority. And, and I would quibble with that. I would say that the Apocrypha comes, you know, if, if here's the line for where, you know, what, where, where inspired scripture is, the Apocrypha is right here. You know, the Eastern church would say it's right here, just above the line. We'd say it's just below the line. You know, the, the fathers would be more down here somewhere, right? So, um, you know, and I, one of the things I am doing this year is, is part of my devotions. I am reading through um, the Apocrypha. I like having a Bible with it as the appendix. I don't really like having it mixed in. Um, I prefer it as an appendix. Now, there are some editions of the Bible that are just amazing. I really like the New Jerusalem. I really like uh, the St. Ignatius um, edition of the, of the RSV, both of which are Catholic Bibles, so it's all mixed in. But um, you know, my, my go-to is usually gonna be with it as an appendix. And I have no problem with it being read um, as, you know, in place of the Old Testament lesson from time to time, um, because it's always been done that way. And, you know, and then that's okay. Um, however, I, I don't like, one, one of my criticisms of some of the daily offices, like the one in 1928, is that they will spend a whole lot of time in the Apocrypha, but they ignore a whole lot of the Old Testament. That, I don't think that's a good idea. So... Um, if in order to read more of the Old Testament, that would require us to eliminate readings from the Apocrypha, I'd be totally okay with that. So that, that's kind of, that's kind of, kind of my, my approach to that. And I think that's an approach that the, the articles of religion would support. Um, you know, they're edifying, but they're not, they're not inspired. And the main difference there is you cannot determine doctrine or dogma independently from the Apocrypha. It has to be present somewhere in the canonical scriptures. That's, that's the main difference. Um, okay, let's see. Um, the next question is related to covenant theology. Although the 39 articles do not seem to directly reference covenant theology, my impression is there's nothing hostile to this understanding um, in the articles is understanding God's way of working. Um, you know, if I'm understanding the prayer book correctly, Angle can certainly believe in original sin, predestination and election. Christ's substitutionary atonement, salvation being the work of God alone, and, and most of the other reform distinctives. But at times, the articles seem ambiguous. <laughs> so would you say that Anglicanism and evangelical reform theology are more similar, similar than different? Are there any major distinctives um, between the two? So yeah, Anglicanism represents a form of, of reformed theology that is earlier and really represents a time when 
really that reformed Lutheran split had not become so um, sharp. And, and so really when it comes to the magisterial reformers, your options really are reformed or, or Lutheran. And the reformed have some developments and, and our tradition comes from a time before a lot of those developments happen, right? So, you know, you get, for example, the Arminian controversy that leads up to the Synod of Dort. Um, you know, we predate that. And while we did have people at Dort who did sign on with that condemnation of Ar Arminius, um, you know, that's, that's not as official of, of a theme for us. Um, so, yeah, there, there, is, there, there is an affirmation of original sin, predestination, election, substitutionary atonement, absolutely all those things are absolutely affirmed. And, and, and that would have been something that was uncontroversial between um, any of the magisterial Protestant traditions, and frankly, including classical Arminianism. I mean, the, the, the debates between the Calvinists and the Arminians, you know, are, are, Arminius was a lot more reformed than, frankly, he was a lot more reformed than today's Reformed Baptists. Like, he, he, he lined up with classical Reformed teaching a lot more than because of those sacramental issues with, with today's Reformed, Reformed Baptist. So, um, yeah, we represent an older form of, but, but when it comes to the major controversy between the, controversies between the Lutheran and the Reformed, which are the sacramental issues, we, our formularies do lean more, more Reformed. Um, so, you know, we, we've talked about this with the Eucharist, for example. You know, the, the Lutheran doctrine of Christ being presence in the sacrament being due to the ubiquity of his humanity would be something that our divines almost all um, rejected. However, um, some, of the, some of the folks within the Lutheran world in the early days that were opposed to that helped us write our formularies, people like Philip Melanchthon. So again, there's been some there's been some developments in in that world as well, and so our we really represent an older, less calcified version of of Protestantism. Um, and so um, covenant theology, um, yeah, historically, I would say most most of our divines would have fall would have looked at covenant theology um, as being the, the main way they would approach. Um, kind of the big story of scripture, systematic theology. They would have done it more from a covenant approach. And we, we had a little, um, a little class on that, that discussed that not too long ago. And it was kind of in the context of how do we approach Israel, the Jewish people and that sort of stuff. And so you can, you can find that on, on YouTube or on our, our website. Um, you do find though, um, Occasionally, you'll find dispensationalists in, 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 in the Anglican world, especially that kind of really early form of dispensationalism, most notably um, uh, Griffith Thomas. Um, and I'm, his, his first initials are, are, are eluding me at the moment. You know, he's kind of considered one of our top evangelical voices from the late 19th and early 20th century. And his big tome on the articles is still widely 
looked at by Anglican evangelicals today. Well, he was also one of W.H. Griffith Thomas. Uh, yeah, Griffith Thomas was one of the um, founders of Dallas Theological Seminary. <laughs> I mean, you don't get more dispensational than DTS, you know. And so, so he, yeah, he was he was a dispensationalist, but but and he's you know considered one of the greatest voices of late nineteenth and twentieth century Anglican evangelicalism. So you do see that from time to time. In general, you're not going to find us being extreme. Anglicans being extreme in any of those sorts of sorts of schema. Um, I, I lean more towards covenant theology myself, um, you know, which is, you know, I come from a messianic background back in the day, and it's very rare to find messianics that are not dispensationalists. So that that was a big part part of the the kinds of changes in my thinking that led me to to go back to my Anglican Episcopal roots. Some of that was also turning away from the, those dispensational um, assumptions. And again, you can find some older classes that address that. Um, and yeah, there's, so yeah, covenant theology is a, is a thing. Um, the, the, main, the main area when it comes to the doctrine of election that we would differ from, our formularies would differ from um, Presbyterians, for example, you know the, that that kind of strand of reform thinking is that we you you tend to find um, supralapsarianism and double predestination is not widely held among Anglican theologians. There, there, you know, infralapsarianism tends to be the main approach, um, and yeah, so. And you also do find some kind of old school Arminians in, among our divines. You know, Wesley, for example, Wesley was, you know, now we know him kind of as the, the Methodists, but he, he was in a Church of England priest until the day he died, you know. And so, so all of that kind of goes back, back to us. Um, but you'll, you'll tend to find, yeah, covenant theology is probably the most, the most common among ours. Okay, let's see. Um, some parish questions. I'm going to push on to see if we can we can finish this out. Um, there's one about outreach and evangelism. Um, yeah, our diocese is missional. Um, we're very involved in church planting. But what about you know here at All Saints? Do we have outreach and evangelism as a major part of parish life? Um, a lot of these types of things have been because of the pandemic put on hold. Uh, and we have been more involved in kind of supply line efforts with that than, than frontline efforts, if that makes sense. So, so, you know, raising money, collecting things, um, more of that than, than, you know, kind of volunteering at the soup kitchens and that sort of thing. Um, we, we did at one time have a, um, a food pantry ministry, but it kind of fizzled. Um, and, and we do, we do support some foreign missions. We support some local missions that are more evangelistic as well as various, um, kind of mercy ministry, corporal acts of mercy sorts of things, but kind of a, a lot of, a lot of the direct pushing for that, um, COVID, 
kind of put some of that on hold more than it needs to be. And we're trying to up some of that again. You, you, you'll, you'll, you may have seen the bulletin um, talking about CAM, Christian Assistance Ministry, for example. And so we are hoping to up that as we're moving out of the pandemic, some of the more direct involvement. But I mean, you know, even we, we were told like, you know, one of, one of the ministries we support, they were like, we have no clue what to do right now. So, <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't know how you can help us. You know, you know that, that's been a, that was a common refrain for about a year, but things are beginning to, to, to move up. Um, a similar question was, you know, are there, are there kind of opportunities for involvement, you know, grow, growing in the community, getting to know folks? And again, that's been one of those things that for, for y'all that are new, COVID has, has really hurt that a lot. Um, you know, we, we, we used to have, and we will again, now that things are, are kind of calming down, uh, several times a year, we have kind of big picnics and kind of social things. Um, we usually have one around our parish anniversary at All Saints Day. We usually have one surrounding the annual meeting. Um, we'd have a, a pancake dinner for Shrove Tuesday, something for the 4th of July. So we, we'd have several times a year kind of big thing, just social things that, that work pretty good. Uh, and it used to be that all of our you know, in between services, we'd have coffee, donuts, Sunday school. We're bringing that back. Our Wednesday night used to be more social. Um, now it's all Zoom, <laughs> and I'm not sure. I'm not sure we're going to go go back to that. There's there's some outreach that the Zoom has been able to do. So we're we're still trying to figure out how some of that works. But we will get back to some of that. And and that that is that is a, one of the big difficulties of of COVID has been it, it's it's really hurt some of those fellowship opportunities but they're coming back and um yeah and ho hopefully there will there will be be opportunities coming up soon okay then the last question i think we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and hear was um to what extent do you think a person who is trusting in christ has been baptized participates in the eucharist tries to live out the teaching of christ and fear his kingdom should fear the possibility of going to hell. So I, th I think there's a couple, and then it kind of goes on a little bit from here, getting, getting a little bit more detail. I'm not, I'm not gonna do that on, on the recording in, in, the, in the class. But um, so some of that, that more fearful of hell aspect has morphed with society. So there, there was a time when that fear of hell, even among very devout Christians, was a lot more common. And, and, that, and that goes across the denominational spectrum. Um, and I, I think there's a healthy fear of that, of hell. But there also needs to be a, a healthy assurance. And this is one of those areas where I think... Um, Frankly, the Puritans got it wrong, and more sacramental folks, like what we are now, got it right. Um, the Puritan approach to your assurance tended to be this very introspective, looking inside, you know, what, is, what does my heart say? Is my heart witnessing to being in fellowship with Christ? Um, you, you know, are my motivations pure, that sort of thing. Whereas a more sacramental approach says, these things are the signs of your assurance that God has given you. 
So if you're doubting your salvation, don't look inside, look to your baptism. If you're doubting your salvation, don't look inside, look to the Eucharist. And, and, and one of the things pastorally is that um, part of the evidence for your salvation is that sometimes you doubt it because people that are not saved don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, the, you know if, if, if that makes sense, you know, and, and, and it kind of, it kind of goes, goes on, you know, similar to, you know, what, what is that? What is the unforgivable sin and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? You know, how do I know if I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Well, if you're asking the question, you probably have it because um, someone that, that has gotten to that point where they have seared their conscience and to the point where they're just shutting out that witness from the Holy Spirit, they're never going to wonder if they've done it, you know? And so, um, yeah, I, I would say, so there, there, there is a balance, you know, we, we are called to examine our lives constantly. The Christian life is one of constant repentance. And if we ever think there's nothing to repent of, that probably means we're not really examining our consciences you know this kind of you know i i i'm having for for my eldest right now you know she she's she's five and part of our nightly prayers right now is okay you have to think of something to be thankful for every single day and and i have to do that too as part of part of that and you know what sometimes it's hard to do that and that's a bad sign you know it's a bad sign if you can't find something that you need to repent of it's a bad sign if you can't find something to be thankful for, <laughs> you know, those are, those are, those both show that you're, you're, you're probably kind of just floating through your day and not really taking the things of the Lord with, with proper sobriety. You're just kind of going through the motions. That's both signs for that. So um, yeah, by all means, um, you know, a, a healthy dose of, of, of examination of the conscience is a good thing. But remember the assurance that we have from the Lord's word um, and the sacraments. And because those are promises from God that we can trust. Um, our heart will lie to us. Our feelings will lie to us. But the, the word and the sacraments will not. So, and I think unless you all have some questions, I think that's where I'm going to probably call it an end of these sessions. And um, for those that are listening on the recording, we're probably going to take a few weeks break, at least through Easter. Um, and I'm just, just kind of stay tuned to the, to the parish announcements for when we'll be back. Or if you don't get those and you're only watching on YouTube, just, just hit subscribe and <laughs> you'll get it every time. <laughs> I don't say that enough. All right. So yeah, unless y'all, if, if y'all have any, anything, um, we, we can, we can go on. Otherwise I'm going to try and stop the recording. All right. Well, um, God bless you all. And thank you for hanging out with all of this. And, um, and for all of you that gave questions, uh, definitely thank you for that too. Mm -hmm.